Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into those questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by one of the most celebrated stars in British comedy. You'll have seen him live at the Apollo, on the BBC's Mock the Week, or possibly on the hit BBC Three series, Man Like Mabeen, comedian extraordinaire, talk show host, and now author of a wonderful new book titled The Secret Diary of a British Muslim, aged 13 and three quarters, Tez Ilias. Tez, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. That was such a lovely introduction. Like, I, I sometimes forget, like, how much things I've done. You forget what and then, and then, you are. When someone, when someone just lists them all at once, I'm like, what, me? <laughs> I did all that? Wow. Yes, you did. Yes, you wow. did. And well done, wow. you. Um, thank you. Well, first off, I wanted to thank you for writing this book, um, because I can genuinely think of none other like it. It speaks on so much without ever having to spell it out. And I don't know if that makes sense to you. Um, it feels both deeply political and yet un entirely unpolitical at once, if that makes sense. Um, and I mean, so, it does to me, because yeah. I know what you mean. But yeah. for anyone listening, they might be thinking, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's both at the same time. It's, it's that teenage diary innocence and yet it has that aspect which you know I know the Guardian have in the past described you as a subversive comedian and I was thinking as I was kind of prepping for this do you think of yourself in those terms do you think of yourself as a subversive comedian you know actually yes it's, it's one of the three uh, adjectives that describe myself with so when, when everyone's like when you have to fill these things in going what sort of a comedian are you like you always ask these questions and I never know what to say because I always just want to say um funny um can I just say that um but I always say um silly smart and subversive that's nice. that's how I that's how I describe myself mm. so sub I'm subversive I do like that word mm. and and so I guess, why did you want to write a teenage diary and what was subversive about that enterprise for you? Um, honestly, the thing came about because there's a little thing called a pandemic. Mm, uh, I don't know if you it. had that, I don't know if you had that where you are, but yeah. um, it was pretty, pretty, pretty ruined our lives up north. And um, so I was, I was, <laughs> I needed a project. So a couple of years ago, maybe even three, four years ago now, I had a meeting with the publishers, with my manager, and I had an idea for a book. And the idea was called Islam for Infidels, which was just a provocative title for Islam for Dummies. And mm -hmm. I wanted to write an, I wanted to write like an accessible, lighthearted, with, with, with the appropriate reverence, but lighthearted book about what it means to be Muslim and what mm -hmm. we actually believe. Um, so they asked me for a couple of sample chapters. We went back and forth. Then I got super busy. And then when the pandemic hit, the person who was managing my project at the publishers left and someone else came in and she looked at it all. And then she came back to us with another idea and she said, would you just like to do a memoir about your teenage years? And I just thought that was such a good idea. Mm. Um, and we started going back and forth about what that could look like. And then 
We talked about Sue Townsend's book, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, age 13 and three quarters. And we thought it'd be really funny to borrow the title from that for my book. Uh, and then we settled on a teenage diary because I'd never written a book before. So the idea of like writing a book with prose and all that was just so intimidating to me. Mm. Um, and so writing a book in this way was actually, yeah, it was, it was, it suited me, I think. Um, and yeah, to write a book about my teenage years without giving him too much foresight about what was happening because I tried to like I tried to write it I said in the forward as well I wanted to write it from the perspective I had at that age yeah um but you can't help creep in a little bit of like what do I think about the situation now yeah and I tried to do as little as that as possible um but when you give a bird's eye view of something that happened 20 years ago with the language that we have today to analyze it I think that is quite subversive without yeah. without without being without being so on the, on the nose about it Mm, yeah no I think that's very much how it felt to me reading it was that um, it wasn't on the nose at all but the kind of implicit critiques in there are you know they're there and they say mm. what they have to say um, was Sue Townsend's book uh, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole a childhood favorite um, for me it was um, so I was wondering if that book meant something to you and whether there was something about that story which was you know obviously the story of what should we say like a uh, a kind of middle class white child um was there something about that story that you felt needed an alternative version that wasn't so steeped in only one vision of Britishness you know what's funny like when I was growing up I had no notion of being working class, middle class, all these sorts of things. Like, obviously I'd heard the words mentioned, but I didn't know what they meant in relation to me. Mm. So when I read stories, uh, for example, you know, when you read The Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe and these kids end up in this massive mansion in the middle of the country. As you do. It, as you do. It just yeah. felt like, and honestly they didn't grow up there, they went there because of the war, but like, it just felt like an adventure that maybe could happen to me one day. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read those things at that time thinking oh yeah that wouldn't happen to me because things like that don't happen to me mm. um it was just like oh what an adventure these kids are on and then you start fantasizing about what would it be like for yourself to be at that adventure because when in the 90s we didn't have the like well at least certainly i didn't have the or the people around me didn't have the language in the way that we speak about things now and i think the discourse has moved on so much even in the last five six years about the way we think we talk about sociological things yeah when i was when i was at that age i just took things at face value so when I'm reading Adrian Mole, I didn't, honestly, I didn't, I mean, I, I knew he was white, but like, apart from that, I didn't think that he was, I didn't think about his class. I didn't think about any of those things. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't even know if he is middle class. I'm not sure, but like, if he is, like, I certainly didn't, it certainly hadn't crossed my mind. Um, don't get me wrong, yeah. there were certain things like there was, you know, if you said to me, if you said to that kid growing up, or you're going to become a famous stand-up comedian one day, that you might have told him you'd be going to come up, become an astronaut because it was, so far removed from any experiences that I had. I didn't even know how to, like, how, how do you even do that? Like, I know how to be a doctor. You go to uni, you get the grades, you know, you study and then you become a doctor, you graduate. Yeah. How do you, how do you become an actor or a comedian or one or a, or a newsreader or, or a Blue Peter presenter? Like, yeah. these things were so alien to me. Um, so, yeah, I, it just, it was interesting because, like, growing up, even when I was at uni, Miriam, like, between the age of 18 and 22, like, I had no notion of, like, I, I look back now and every single or 95% of my friends at uni were white middle class. Mm. I didn't take that into account back then. Like it didn't, it didn't seem to matter. 
Um, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't even realize that. I look back now and I see and I remember certain things and and a, and a word that we use now, which is oh maybe that was problematic, oh maybe that was whatever. But yeah, at the time I just took things at face value, and if there was a problem, I didn't think of it as a big issue. I just saw it as a this is happening to me in this moment, not not sort of the bigger picture of um, an Asian guy in this. Obviously, if, if there was like explicit racism, obviously I can recognize that. Like, yeah. But, but I'm talking about the sort of less explicit things, the sort of more structural, institutional things, um, the microaggressions, all that sort of stuff. I would, I didn't, rec- I didn't recognize any of that when I was a kid. Yeah. And how do you feel about the way that that conversation has shifted then today? You know, I have I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I think I think it's certainly good that we are talking about it, and I think there are things that definitely need to be addressed. Um, but I also sometimes part of me yearns for those simpler times. Yeah. The, that that pre-internet era where the world just seemed a bit smaller. Um, oh, sorry, the world seemed a bit bigger. Sorry, the world seemed a bit bigger, and we weren't necessarily connected to everyone's thoughts all the time. Mm. Um, because I think that one of the issues that I have with modern language and discourse, and this this shouldn't, I think it's my comedic brain that focuses on fringes, um, is that I always tend to focus on what the fringes are saying. And because the fringes of any group, ideology, creed, are quite problematic and toxic and misuse what might be the central tenant of said ideology, creed, whatever. Yes, we're familiar with that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I tend to focus on those things. Um, and, and so I always see that as, and, 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 and those people, because often because those people tend to shout the loudest. Yeah. Um, and often see that and I just think maybe we'd be better off without all of this. Mm. Um, you know, the sort of, you got, you got your, you got your, bre- you got your hardcore Brexiteers at one end and then you got the other people at the other end calling them all stupid, which isn't going to change their mind. Yeah. Um, and then you got people in the middle trying to talk to each other, and that becomes that conversation becomes more difficult because of the fringe groups. Um, and I think would Brexit have happened without the internet? Probably not. Mm. Um, so I do, I do sometimes, <laughs> I do sometimes have this fantasy that we wake up and there is no more internet, and it's like being in 1999 again with teletext mm, and imagine. CFAX, and imagine. that's how we get away. That's how we get away information. Wow, I mean, back to recording, you know, songs off the radio using tape. Yeah. And recording over. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went down a little nostalgia lane reading your book. I have to say, um, what? Uh, so, you know, the podcast is about whiteness. What does whiteness mean to you? Such a good question. Mm. You know, I, I often, I often read about these things and about whiteness and things, and I feel like. It's such a, because, because in this country and generally probably all over the country, we are taught racism and it's, and it's only probably, the discourse has probably already changed. I'm not, that, not saying that these ideas are new, but the sort of discourse has probably already changed in the last five, six years. Yeah. I was taught growing up, racism is, you say a bad thing to someone that is like a, like a, like a racial epithet, that mm-hmm. is racist. Right, or, yeah. or if you don't employ someone because they are a certain race, that is racist. Mm. Now, obviously, the language, yeah, yeah, and and that's how we grew up. And I'm not saying these ideas are new, but they certainly weren't discussed around my circles or around me or on TV or anything that I had access to. Yeah. So now the, the language is different, and institutional racism, structural racism, whiteness being a construct. Um, you know, there's no such thing as reverse racism because 
you know, you can't be racist against the sort of oppressor and all that, all that, all these sorts of ideas are, I'm not saying they're new ideas, but they're new to me. And I think also they are new to most people yeah. who engage in this subject. So I think for most people, this idea of what is whiteness is kind of, is a bit abrasive because you're like, what do what you mean? Because yeah. um, I, I, I grew up around, you know, working class white kids. And when, when these discussions are had, I can't help but feel a modicum of sympathy for them mm. because, because they, they, they and their family, obviously they benefit from being white and the privilege that that brings with it in certain ways, but their families and their ancestors weren't the ones who created whiteness as we understand it now. Mm. They weren't the ones who, 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 who decided to go around the world and dominate and, and oppress other cultures. They may have been, part of it because they were part of you know the expedition but as yeah. we know in them days people also didn't have a choice in those matters yeah. um and and the idea of being a conscious conscientious objector in the year 1635 and then getting <laughs> your head chopped off just seems a bit unfair there were limited um, options yeah 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 just seems a bit unfair uh, and you know you, you you have irish blood in you and so you know how the oppression of the irish people as well is so i just i just find it a bit complicated so I, I i am aware of the construct of whiteness and how it was created to differentiate between uh, you know the white conquerors and their and their black and brown subordinates um as they went around the world and they created this two-tier r- racial hierarchy um but i also can't help because of because of where i grew up and how i grew up and the people i grew up around i can't help feel a, a, a modicum of sympathy for the people that seem to be caught up in it caught up in this conversation now who have who who haven't been prepared for this conversation their entire lives yeah no and i think you make a really important point which you know sometimes i mean a lot of the terminology that we use now in the mainstream you're completely right to say is not yet fully understood in my opinion a lot of it is taken from you know academia from people who've spent a long time in you know critical Mm. race studies uh understanding kind of the ways in which uh racial theories have been devised and how they operate but Um, those same people would never negate, for example, the importance of class. They just Mm. happen to be studying race. Do you see what I mean? Whereas now when we have the conversation, it's almost like whiteness can become the only lens through which we analyze a particular situation. And Mm. actually it was always meant to be one of several ways in which oppression can operate and class-based oppression, you know, able-bodied type oppression, sexual Mm. sexuality based. These are all other really important ways in which discrimination or oppression work but you know I, I I hear you I think sometimes the whiteness conversation can be uh assumed to mean that that's the only lens of oppression uh, that exists um and that for working class white people that definitely could feel like a kick in the teeth you know <laughs> I, feel, I feel like there should be like a license to be able to use certain terminology and certain words in I discourse. don't disagree with you on that one. I <laughs> like don't you have disagree. to take a test to make sure that you're not misusing this because I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by the relationship between active particularly online activism which let's be honest isn't the same as activism. Oh, 100%. Uh, particularly online activism and, and counterproductiveness. Yes. Because I think <laughs> the amount of people that have been turned off by probably exploring racial justice and things because of the way people talk online 
it's it can be so counterproductive like to, take co- take cultural <laughs> appropriation for example yeah that is that is a thing uh, that is a thing that exists it is real but why why are people screaming at 16 year old girls wearing a, a sari to their prom I mean, you you know, this is not where, territory I feel very comfortable wading in on, but <laughs> you you could tell how, me you but, you're but definitely how, more more in a place of authority to comment okay, on that. I, one. Think, I, think, I, I hear I, you I, though. I, hear I, read you. A, I read I read a story about some sixteen year old. I think a sixteen year old girl paused. Um, she's going to a prom, and you know, she's pausing in a sari, and you know, Twitter's all awash with cultural appropriation, blah blah blah, and it's like, but this is an individual woman. A girl even she's not saying she's invented the sorry she's obviously paying homage she up it's cut it's like cultural appropriation uh sorry yeah appreciate uh, appreciate appreci- sorry yeah appreciation yeah like she she likes the culture she likes this maybe she likes how it feels on her whatever for whatever reason she decided to wear this it's not halloween it, yeah she's not wearing it as a costume she's wearing it as a dress as an indian uh girl might to to an event to, to like a nice event um and she's obviously showing appreciation for it no one's saying, no one is thinking she has invented the sari. This isn't French Connection releasing a... Um, a the latest a, 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 a one, Yeah, a cloth, <laughs> a, a red cloth that you can wear, a one-piece red cloth to cover yourself. This isn't that. This is a girl who's aware that this is an Indian dress and is wearing it because she likes it. She's not misuse. She's not wearing it to Halloween or whatever. She's not disrespecting it. And I think that misuse of the discourse, I think, is really damaging because... If that is your first, if you're a white guy who's into football and that is your, and, and so you're, because you're, we're all in our Twitter silos and so we only see what we are interested in. Unfortunately, but then that, yes. And then, and then that gets, and then that conversation gets retweeted into your timeline and that is your first experience of the issue of cultural appropriate, appropriation and that sort of stuff. That is going to put you off forever. Because whenever, because whenever now you see the term cultural appropriation and where it might be rightly used, you're just going to think that's the whole thing is bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I've I I hear you, and I previously referred to um, critical race theory and some of the terminology within that, including whiteness, actually, as a samurai sword. Um, to become a samurai, you have to go through many many years of mm. training in in the yes. art of becoming a samurai. And you are not allowed to wield the samurai sword until you have undertaken that extensive training. Um, you can't just watch the last samurai pick up a samurai sword and think you uh, are, you know, Tom Cruise. But, but oh, one second. Yes, um, Tez is um, in a hotel in Bath right now and decided to extend. Uh, his time uh, which should have I think his checkout was meant to be about 15 <laughs> minutes ago so I just, I just got I just got shouted that so we got fine I think I think we'd be fine for, uh, for okay for, well we'll, for we'll, we'll we'll try and keep keep going on that one but yeah so I mean I think there's a lot of Tom Cruises out there is what I'm gonna say um, yeah and I think like it's also like we can't we can't all just be doctors because we now have access to Wikipedia and yeah. and WebMed and learn about different diagnoses doesn't mean we're qualified to diagnose people yes no I I hear you on that one um I wanted to talk to you about um something in the book that you chose to do I think I'm sure very consciously you opted to use a lot of Punjabi words of a lot of mm. you know Arabic and Islamic references um, was it important to you for that vernacular to be read by audiences who might not be familiar with it? So important, mm. so important. And I think one of the 
One of the things I find so interesting is how Western culture is obsessed with fiction and um, you know, people will, people are, people have that, you know, the stand culture, people will stand different things, whether it's Marvel or Game of Thrones or Star Trek, Star Wars, etc., etc. There's a multitude of things um, that people are massive fans of, and they will go to pains to learn how to pronounce certain things. People will learn Klingon, which is a made up language for the Star Trek show. Um, in wow. The Hobbit, they learn how to pronounce all those different words that Tolkien created, uh, Elvish and all of that. And like people will, and, and, and people um, will recognize themselves in stories where everyone is an alien, yes. and they'd be like, "Oh yeah," and I'm like, "Well, why Perfect. can't they do?" Yeah, and I'm like, "You know, yeah, fantasy." So why can't people do that for actually a culture that already exists? Mm. Um, why is it that if you see a brown story, uh, a brown person using brown words, that's suddenly inaccessible? It's not. Just put the same amount of effort in as you do in pronouncing Daenerys Targaryen. That's not an easy name to pronounce. Um, Rather you than me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, um, why, why do you think that is then? What do you see as is, is underlying that um, sort of unwillingness to, um, I think I've, I've had definitely heard people say, uh, you can learn to say Dostoevsky, but you can't learn to pronounce, you know, X person's, you know, African mm -hmm. or Asian sounding name, yeah. I think, I think part of it, there is an unconscious bias and I think part of it is an underlying racism, I think. Mm. Not, not, not overtly, not explicitly, not the sort of, this, not the sort of racism I'd have recognised as a kid. Yeah. But I think there is definitely an element of racism there where they're like, this is, this is your story. Mm. It's not, I don't get it, mate. Mm. I, don't, I don't need I don't, to get it. Yeah, I don't get it. And actually, yeah, I don't get it. And actually, I don't, I don't think I need to get it because it's not really, it's not really going to impact my life. It's not really about me, is it? And then, and then they'll switch on some fantasy thing set in a universe 100 million light years away and be completely enthralled by it. And mm. you're like, bro, I'm, I live down the road. Yeah. Like, take interest in my story, innit? Yeah. Um, and, and you, I mean, one of the stories in the book that you mentioned is the story of um, Peshazad, if I pronounce that correctly. Yeah, so, 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 by, so by just means older brother. Okay, so uh, so, so, his so So his name's Shazad. So Shazad's story looms ominously, I guess, in the early part of the book. Um, and then sort of we find out a bit later what happens. Um, can you tell us about the story and how it marked your childhood? Because I know that you draw parallels there with the Stephen Lawrence murder. Um, and so I was just wondering what that particular story meant to you and why, why it was important to, to, you know, to include it. Yeah, so Shazad, um, God, God rest his soul, he's... Um, he was, he, was a, he was a kid a few years older than us and so he was someone that we really, really looked up to and he, um, I call him a kid now because I'm like twice his age mm. um, that when he, when he passed away. So um, so he was a kid that grew, grew up uh, a few, you know, a few years older than us, someone that we really looked up to and he wasn't a blood relative but he was my aunt's uh, best friend's son. So he felt like a cousin, even though he wasn't blood related to us, because we saw him, we saw him quite regularly, and he was always super friendly with us and super nice to us, and always seemed available for a conversation or a chat if you ever needed advice. Not that a ten year old we ever sought people's grown ups advice, but he always seemed around and and, and really nice and stuff. And he was very popular, handsome kid. Um, he was just someone who radiated warmth and just, just a nice, just an all round lovely, lovely man. A uh, young man, and uh, he he was in the wrong place at the wrong time in November, 
1995, uh, and he's with some friends who saw a fight. Uh, they stopped their car. They got out to stop the fight, and one of someone in that involved in that fight turned around and stabbed him. And um, unfortunately, he, he he passed away shortly after because they were they weren't able to save him. And it was just I just remember when I described in my book the evening of when we found out he was he was murdered and and you know my dad explaining it to me and stuff and it just didn't make any sense it just mm. didn't make any sense because you know we don't we, we, we had crime in London we had violence in I'm uh, sorry we had crime in Blackburn we had violence in Blackburn but never like people weren't routinely murdered in Blackburn right and especially someone that we know in such violent circumstances and someone who's good kid you know there was certain other people around that if you'd heard that they got involved in something and they ended up losing their life you'd be like that's really sad but yeah that person was involved in whatever and unfortunately that's that's what happens with it comes with the territory but he wasn't that guy he was in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, you know uh, it's, so, so therefore it just didn't make sense like why that was the question like why why him yeah and then it makes you scared because you think well it could be anyone then because he didn't deserve that he he wasn't part of that life he didn't caught that life he, yeah. he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's same with Stephen Lawrence you know Stephen Lawrence did not not that anyone deserves that happening to them but Stephen Lawrence did not deserve that happening to him mm. he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and um I think people are slightly confused in the Shazad story because um because I draw parallels to the Stephen Lawrence murder um so, so Shazad wasn't murdered by white kids he was murdered by some Indian kids Mm. Who 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 travelled up to London? Sorry, up to, from London to Blackburn uh, to to start a fight with someone they had some beef with. How they had some beef with someone from Blackburn from London back in '95? I have no idea. Um, I don't even. And I don't even. No doubt. Yeah, and I don't even know who to ask. Who who to, who who to ask? Um, um, uh, and I think the injustice was is that those people got away with it. Yeah, those those Indian lads that did that got away. They were never brought right. To no one was ever prosecuted. No, in that yeah, case. no one was prosecuted. Right. And also because we were Pakistani and they were Indian and they were from down south, we were from up north. Yeah, there was that element of sort of some sort of racial injustice there as well. Not as stark as black and white, but there was some sort of like cultural racial injustice that that we felt. Okay, um, because right. they were these are kids from the capital city, some Indian kids. We're Pakistani yeah. in this backwards town up north. Right. Why wasn't that? Why, why wasn't there some? Why wasn't justice brought to us? Okay. Um, so, so there wasn't. There was a small element of that, but it wasn't. The, it wasn't a, the black and white issue, per, um, as as we understand it in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Right, uh, murder. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, but, that's um, that's. But it. But it was a. Um, I guess a, a point in the book that brought out a, a sort of different racial dynamic, which mm, which mm. I guess we don't also uh, hear about that often. And I thought that that was. Uh, an interesting one that you would have chose to have, have raised. Um, you you reference, you know, the bombings in Brixton and, and Brick Lane on your return from a, a trip to Pakistan as a kid. And, and I was wondering what those events were, you know, how did you interpret them at the time? I mean, in the book, you say you understood that it was a non-gore. Is that is that the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah. That it yeah, was yeah. non-gore people who were targeted um but what did did you have a sense of why that was happening and what how did it make you feel vis-a-vis -vis kind of wider white British society if at all you know what we, we, I, I never as a kid did that thing of like blanket um 
blame mm -hmm. in the way that we, in the way the media do very well for us. Um, I never did that thing. So I always only ever saw it as an individual. I was like this, whoever it is, well, like, to be fair, I didn't know it was an individual at the time, but whatever group it was or whatever. Yeah. You know, I think because also we had a history of IRA bombings um, in the 90s that I do remember, um, including the, the famous uh, big Manchester bombing. Yeah. You know, the, I, I never saw that. You know, the, the, those were sort of, you know, Irish Republicans who had certain beef. Occasionally they said they were Catholic, but that never seemed to be like the main element of the story. Yeah. Um, An extension of the Irish liberation yeah. movement, you know, people who still yeah. believe that air should be united, that, you know, that the British shouldn't have a claim to Northern Ireland, that that represents an extension of, you know, British imperialism and colonialism. And there are still, you know, people who, without necessarily supporting violent means, you know, share that view, I think, um, even yeah. today. Yeah, yeah, which I have a lot of sympathy for. Uh, not, not, the, not the violence, but the, the, no, the cause. Yeah. Uh, but the cause, and the, and, um, which I think does have a lot of merit. But, but obviously the IRA were, did use violence as means yeah. to, try, to try and achieve that. Uh, and so in the backdrop of that, when the Soho bombings happened, I just saw it as another, well, I didn't know as an individual, but another group or whatever who had some sort of beef, but in, in, this, in this case, it seemed racial. Um, yeah. But... I didn't think, even though there were tensions in school, I didn't think that white, I didn't see it as like white people are like this or white people are like that. Even though we said, you know, go, like I was like, it was obvious to me that this was a white group or a white person that was doing this. Yeah. But I didn't think to myself, oh my God, I must be scared. I, I should be wary of all white people because white people are like this. White people go around bombing non-Gore, you know, black people, brown people. So what did Gore mean? Gore just means white people. But does it, you know what I mean? Like, all right. I feel like there are so many meanings you can give to like white people, even yeah, when we yeah, use it in are, conversation, right? Even if yeah, I yeah, say, yeah, oh yeah, yeah he's yeah. white, but like you could say, she's white. Like there's different yeah, ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what does Gordon mean? Or at least what yeah, does it again, mean it can, yeah. Similarly, it can just it can just be a descript, a, a sort of non-plus descriptor. Oh yeah, she's a Gori in it. Or yeah, he's a Gora. Or it can be like, bro, she's a Gori in it. Ah, uh, yeah. Or like, obviously she's a Gori. That's why she did that. Like, yeah. like you know, so, you, so again, similarly, you could use it in different ways but I think 95% of the use of it in the book is just of the description because that's just how we talk in the same way that you'd be like oh yeah I went to a school with an Asian kid I went to school with a black kid I went to school with a Gora kid yeah and and we, and, and we had that sort, of, that sort of like code switching when we were younger that you speak speaking in English but there were certain words that you always said in Punjabi yeah so, so when we're talking to our friends our other Pakistani Indian friends if we were describing food uh, or Desi food at least we'd always use the Punjabi word for it. Mm. Like I would never, I would never ever say to my cousin or an Asian friend, I'm going home to eat rice. I would <laughs> never, or, or a chapati. I would never say that. Even today, to this day at 38, I would say, oh yeah, bro, I'm just going home to eat some javel. My mom made some javel. That's what I would say. Yeah. Um, and, and the same thing, like I wouldn't say to my friend, oh yeah, he's a white guy. I'd be like, yeah, he's a gora. Yeah. And do, do you think that today, especially with where we're at as a society, that actually instead of seeing these words as foreign, maybe they are just part of the vernacular and not just like yeah. a subgroup vernacular, but like part of our British vernacular. And we and, and maybe they, the fact that there are still only certain terms that are understood by subgroups kind of reflects the sort of one sided uh, part of our culture in which there are parts of what 
parts of our culture which are British Asian. British British culture is British Asian culture. Yeah. Uh, British Asian culture is British. So, um, mm. but but there's still so much of British Asian culture which is um, not well understood, I guess, by a lot of the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Is that that? Does that feel like? Um, do you feel that as a slight, or do you feel that as just? Um, yeah. I do. I, I, no, I do a little bit because when you when you consume and we we all do a lot of American media, mm. um, TV film music I think obviously America's got an infinite amount of problems but American culture has embraced black culture white culture white southern culture uh Latino culture so you know the, how many times have we seen a tv show and there's a Latin character and uh you know Mexican character maybe or a Puerto Rican character or a Dominican character speaking in Spanish slang Hispanic slang and it's just, and at no point am I ever watching that thinking, he's not American. I'm like, yeah, that's, he's Latin yeah. American. That's how they speak. That's part of the richness of American culture is A-S-A and all that. Yeah. I've got yeah. very good accents, but how they speak. And I feel like we haven't done that to British Asian culture. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, you, you've got a comedy tour coming up called The Populist. I, I do want to talk do. about this. Um, I've, I've, I've changed the name to the Vicky tour, but, but talk to the me. Vicky and tour. Why. All right, cool. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested either way in understanding why your initial thought went to populism. I might have a sense of why, but, you know, populism obviously is of our time. Uh, it's on the rise across Europe. Um, what does the term populism mean to you? And so why, why was that your initial go-to as, as the name of your tour? I mean, populism, as, as any thing, can be a good or a bad thing, right? So you can, depending on what side of the fence you're on. Like, if you're a, if you're a Trump supporter, that populist wave that took him to victory is amazing. It's incredible. It's great. Conversely, the populism vote that took Imran Khan to victory in Pakistan, I'm quite happy about. Not that, that, not that he's perfect, but, you know, what are the options? I was quite pleased about that. Um, and I think the, the idea for the show came to me when because I was quite, uh, you know, because I, I have a political opinions and I'm not afraid to air them in, uh, on certain occasions. I occasionally have people saying to me, Tez, you should run. <laughs> mm. you, should, you, you should be prime minister. You should be an MP. Why don't you become mayor of Blackburn, blah, 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 or, or, you know, and certain other things. And I just want to write a show about why that would be a terrible idea. Okay. Uh, and why I, I would be completely ill-suited uh, to being a politician or, or, or a leader of, 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 of a country or even a town mm -hmm. uh, and, and explore why actually all of us would, mm. uh, without exception in this room have come to see the show, none of us would be good at that. Um, and, 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 and also part and then in the show discuss the, the, the populist movements and, and, and what it means to be a populist and the dangers of it, the good things about it and the dangers of it. But then the pandemic hit and I kind of just, at this point now, because people have had such a tough year, I just want to go out and make people laugh. Mm, mm. And so now I'm inclined, so, so I've changed the show from the populist to the Vicked tour, and Vicked is uh, a catchphrase of mine because uh, British Asians have their own language, and one of the things that even British Asians have been here their whole life do is sometimes they accidentally swap their Ws and their Vs. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying wicked, we might say wicked, mm -hmm. uh, and like without even realizing it, which is something apparently that I do without even knowing. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I call it that, and I think also like 
then people would recognize me a bit more because with the mm-hmm. populist they might not necessarily recognize that it's me straight away whereas they said the vicar would be like oh yeah the guy in man like moby yeah yeah cool yeah he's funny let's go watch him Your um, phrase, yeah 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 and just yeah come out and just let people enjoy themselves and make them laugh and not necessarily have to think so deep about certain things but i mean just the way i write in the subtext there are always things to think about because yeah. that's just how i write my stand-up but not have it so overtly and explicit yeah at this point in time I mean Mm. I was going to ask you about the extent to which you feel able to speak openly as a British Pakistani Muslim about your political perspectives do you feel like you have to censor some of what you say I know that some of your biggest sketches have been around Islamophobia and you've taken those concepts to huge audiences at the Apollo um, and I think broadly received a really incredible reaction to them um, but I'm wondering you know we're speaking today um, the, the ceasefire was um, a, a fragile ceasefire if that agreed yesterday um, in, in, in Palestine in the occupied territories with Israel um, are, the, are there certain topics that you feel like you have to censor yourself on um, and if so do you relate that to whiteness in any way? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. I, I won't talk about. I don't want to talk about the topics that I feel like I do censor myself for. Of course but not. There that are definitely you have there to. are yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah. But there are definitely topics that I self censor. There are topics that I just don't engage with at all yeah. ever. Um, we can talk about offline about what those ones are. Yeah. Uh, and there are some topics that I'm more careful about what I say, and then there are certain topics that I just unleash. Mm. Um, my opinion on um and i think part of it is because if you are a loud non-white person in this country you pin a target on your back Mm. opinionated that is not necessarily the center right slash right mainstream opinion um propagated by the media in this country if you are against that if you go against that loudly vociferously passionately you make yourself a target and particularly if you are if you are muslim so there's a racial thing and there's a muslim thing as well if Mm. you are a orthodox practicing muslim who wishes to engage in mainstream politics mainstream activism you pin a target on your back look at what happened in birmingham with the trojan horse scandal Mm. um completely fabricated scandal Mm. to stop muslim parents having influence in schools yeah because they always say to us why aren't you integrating why aren't you um taking part in our institutions in this country but when we do it as ourselves they come for us Mm. and that does not make you so if you look at that from an outsider perspective if you look if you're in the community looking at that it doesn't make you want to integrate more. It makes you want to retreat more into your own community. Hmm. Um, and so, pe- yeah, and so people are infami- unfamiliar with the Trojan horse scandal. There were some parents on the on the, on the governor's board in a school in Birmingham, a, a you know a, a normal state school, and someone anonymously wrote a letter saying that these Muslim parents were trying to subvert the curriculum and were trying to islamify the curriculum and and islamify the school blah 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 all of these things all these dog whistle accusations yes the government the the, the times ran the story 
the government got involved and held an inquiry. This ruined, I've met some of these people that were involved, that have been accused of these things. It ruined their lives. Yeah. They all know how to leave their jobs. It was mega stressful. And then two or three years later, it turned out the whole thing was a hoax. And, and a lot of those kids really suffered in their exams because there was yeah. huge media attention, yeah. so much um, kerfuffle around the school at the time. And like you say, I mean, I remember one of the, the accusations was all there. They're turning the uh, morning assembly uh, speech, which, you know, in non-denominational schools can be um, of any religious perspective. I mean, some schools rotate the different mm. religions giving uh, their perspectives in the morning. Um, and this school, which was, I think, very overwhelmingly Muslim, mm. um, had suggested a Muslim, uh, you know, morning assembly speech. Um, and, and not even, I, I think, every day. And, it, and this was considered to be one of the pieces of evidence uh, used against them. And, you know, today, looking back, it's like these are quite normal things that happen in schools across the country. It's not particularly yeah. strange for uh, Muslim speakers to be invited in schools that have large Muslim student bodies. It probably shouldn't be weird, even if they don't have large mm. Muslim student mm. bodies. I mean, how do you think of the relationship between whiteness and being Muslim? Because you talk a lot about Islamophobia and I think you've probably been one of the most successful voices in bringing that conversation to the mainstream actually. And it, and it says a lot that comedy has been the route for that. Um, so what, yeah, how do you see the relationship between- I think, I th I think white, whiteness as we understand it in its academic terms of you know, this um, sort of um, um, colonial force. I think it's found a new home in new atheism. Mm. And when I look back over the last decade, last 20 years even, the people that have tried to beat Muslims the stick the most is those academics and thinkers that were so celebrated in the noughties who've turned their attention for whatever reason to Islam. You know, you know who I'm talking about, the Richard Dawkins and some Harris's of the world. Mm. And you listen to some of their arguments. I remember Richard Dawkins once tweeted, um, oh, how many Nobel Prizes have been won by Muslims in this entire history? And it was some like a ridiculously low figure. Yeah. And I was just like, and I was like, are you Richard Dawkins, are you so fucking stupid yeah. that you think that a, a, a Western-created academic institution is going to routinely recognise Muslim scientists in the East? It just doesn't happen. What if the Nobel Peace Prize was created, or maybe Muslims, maybe the East wasn't so arrogant to create an academic prize back in the 13th, you know, the 10th, 11th, 12th century, because the telly would have been sweeping it then. Right. Yeah. In them I mean, days, yeah. Uh, you know, and the foundation of your entire work, of the work of so many Western institutions, the foundation of that was built by Arabs and by Muslim thinkers, mm. who in turn that that a lot of their thinking was built by by, by Asian Greeks and, and and all that you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's all interrelated. So to have this arrogance and to use that as a stick to beat Muslims with is just racist. Mm. Mm. Because because oh oh Islamophobia is not racism Islam's not a race well it's just a lovely coincidence that most visible Muslims happen to be brown or black what a lovely coincidence mm. and so this idea that 
people who are Islamophobic aren't engaging in racism is just fucking bullshit. Mm. Do you feel like it's a new conduit for an old, an old age problem? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. it's, it's a Trojan horse, isn't it, for these racist ideas? Mm. But it's dressed up in academic sort of modern vernacular and sort of like oh no but like you know we're against christianity too all right bro good good for you innit? you learned that when, when you were a kid mm. like all right talk to them then innit? <laughs> um which which actually before we head over to the quick fire round uh takes me nicely to your um real uh, dislike for my country of heritage france is there, any, is there anything that you'd like to say in your oh defense? my god i hate the french so much oh my god yes you I, can, I, you, I think you, i might you, have gathered that yeah your country your country is beautiful in it like aesthetically very nice very pretty food banging i feel the same way about the french as white skinheads do about asians oh gosh wow we're oh going god, there the, with it the food's amazing but, <laughs> but the people can fuck off like yeah. that's how I feel about it. Um, no, it's it's it's. Um, I'm being obviously slightly flippant, but it's 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 um, fr- France. Yeah, cries victim all the time, and there is no sense of irony or self awareness or even admission of the crimes, horrendous, horrific crimes that the French government perpetrated in Africa and North Africa in recent living memory. And so whenever things go wrong in France, it's like, where is your sense of irony? Where is your self-awareness? So for example, when a French terrorist uh, who happens to be Muslim wrongfully chops someone's head off in France, and the whole world is up in arms about it, saying, oh, this is against French values. Who the fuck invented the guillotine? It's a French word. Mm. What yeah. are you talking about? Well, not to mention the fact that, you know, I don't think there were very many Muslims who were particularly happy to hear that a poor school teacher had been decapitated outside exactly. of school. Ex- exactly. Yeah. The, like, who's going to be the biggest victims of that act? who's going to be more scrutinized who's going to be more policed who's going to be who's going to be um who's who are they going to make policy against in that situation muslims we're the first who are upset about these things and the first that are punished for it as well collectively Mm. like it's just and and you know this idea that French school kids are forced to eat pork because there's no other meat option on the menu. And if the kid says, I don't want to eat meat, suddenly that's a sign of radicalization. What the fuck? Yeah, these were some of the proposals that were brought in, particularly by far right um, politicians in France who, you know, now uh, represent a significant portion um, of. It's the, the second, it's yeah. the second biggest party. It's like, yeah, it's it like if, if the B if the BNP was the second biggest party in Britain, that's what it is. Yeah, and I'm like, well, that means there's a lot of French people who are voting for these guys. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we you know current polls uh, suggest that Marine Le Pen, who's the leader of the far right in France, could actually win the next election. I mean, and this wouldn't be the first time that those predictions have happened. They haven't actualized before, but no, it, it is. It is definitely a reality that the pendulum, the political pl- pendulum in France has swung very significantly 
to the right with the far right weighing much more heavily um so i i'm you know i understand <laughs> all i'm going to say is uh you know if you look at french history we've always been divided between you know the those who were collaborators and the resistance uh, a mm. resistance which incidentally not not you know arrogating that role to myself but began in london um and you know the the elites uh, you know versus the people um there's always been two frances and yeah. uh, there's always been a struggle over what it means to uphold french values and there's always been yeah. you know one group um particularly those in power trying to claim that they have a monopoly over those values and there's always yeah. been you know a, a pushback from I would say that in French we say le peuple, the people, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. coming down to the streets and saying, you know, that's not us. This is not our vision of what it means to be French. And I think that, you know, time will tell. I mean, we I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet, but I do think that the polarization that we're seeing is leading to more and more people who might have until now sort of felt like they could just be apolitical and there's there's a sort of comfortable space that a lot of uh, people who are racialized as white who, are, who have a comfortable life you know they don't necessarily feel like they have to be engaged in politics because everything's kind of okay in their world more and more of that group I think are you know being being pulled one way or another um, mm. it's it's less and less comfortable I think in France today to just be sat on the on the fence but you know where that goes unfortunately uh, like you say the proportions don't look good at the moment um so we'll allow you i think because yeah because, because even if marie le pen doesn't get voted in that's yeah. still like how coming second is alarming a hundred percent we had you know 30 percent over 30 percent of people voting 30 percent that's a lot yeah it was yeah it's a I, lot, isn't it? um and also um le miserable is one of the worst things i've ever seen in my life <laughs> you mean the Victor Hugo version because there Honestly. is also a new version of Les Miserables by uh, a, a director called Lajli uh, which I have to recommend uh, which is a reimagining of the uh, traditional uh, Les Miserables but set in the this, Listen yeah why yeah. does this kid this posh kid yeah with Quite no it. problems in his life mm. he joins the revolution yeah and then, and then, fair enough, if that's what he wants to do, good for you. But then his head gets turned by this girl he's never met in his entire life. He drops the revolution like a bad smell. He chases this girl. Her uncle, you know, her adopted father, you know, very smartly recognizes this creep and takes her away. And then he's like, oh, I better get back to the revolution then. I guess there's nothing else to do. And then everyone else fucking dies except him. And then he gets the girl. I hated this story so much. <laughs> I hated it so much. Yeah, so much. I mean, I I think that Cosette as the kind of fictional character is uh, symbolic in France, and that the uh, the the irony for me is that we struggle to recognize the modern reflections of Cosette, uh, which you know was the orphan child, you know, unmarried mother, deserted by the father, all that stuff. So Cosette represents the like the working class poor in France today, but the irony is that we can't see the new cousettes uh, because the cousettes today are black and brown and that mm. we don't mm. have a strong um, 
working class leftist solidarity movement that includes all working class people um, and in mm. my opinion is still quite racialized um, in a way that we've seen I think some attempts to, to push that way here in the UK too but um, that that might have to be for a, another a whole other podcast um, yeah. I want to take you to our quick fire round now um, so these are quick questions with quick answers what is your definition of whiteness Definition of whiteness is um, the people who most benefit from the society that was created over the last 400 years, particularly through colonialism. And that doesn't include all white people. What is the root of racism? Power. So people deciding and realizing that because people are different to them, they can exploit that for power uh, and yeah, I think that's that's that underlying root cause. And stupidity, that's the underlying root cause. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I think it's something you can imagine. I don't think it's achievable. I think human beings are flawed and I think they will continue to be flawed forever. And we always need something to fight over. So even if we achieve racial par paradise you know racial balance whatever i don't know what the term is um there will be we find something else to fight and kill each other for uh so it might as well be about this in it because at least at least at least you can it's black and white you can see why even if it is fucking stupid uh and desirable i don't know if we saw racism would i have a comedy career miriam wow i mean we wouldn't want to lose that um, exactly is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Um, yes, for academia, high level conversations where people know what they're talking about, nor for day-to-day -day discourse. Yes, I think you made some really important points about that earlier. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, on this episode. If people want to purchase your book, where should they head? You have a bookstore of choice. Yeah, so if you go on tezilias.com slash hello, there are links to everything on there, including a book link, which will take you to like Amazon, Waterstones, the ebook, Kindle, or the audiobook. Uh, so you have a range of options to uh, listen to it or read it. Um, then there's also tickets you can purchase for my tour this autumn. Uh, the Vicky tour, I'll be all over the country. Uh, I also have a little bit of merch on there. And there's also all, all of my work, my various work, my stand-up show, uh, my TV shows and all that, all the links that are there. So tezilias.com slash hello. And that's also where people can find your Twitter and Instagram handles? Yeah, all of my links to everything are on there. Fantastic. Well, Tez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. <laughs>